Isaiah 14, verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and commit this time to him. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we just thank you for another opportunity to be able to learn from your word and to be taught by your spirit. And we just pray, Lord, that our hearts would be open to your truth and that you would use me simply as an instrument in your hand to be able to challenge my brethren here to live further for you, that we might glorify you in everything we do in everything we say, because you deserve it all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I found um, it's been quite an eventful week for a lot of people. A lot of people being getting sick um, and, and other things, disasters going on. Uh, in the midst of um, Miriam being sick, our cat decided to take a turn. Okay, For those of you who have met my cat, who's met my cat? Look at him, look at him. It's a fan club as well. Okay, so our cat of 15 years of age um, has been part of the family for a long time and um, he lives the front. Most of you know he lives the front of our house and in the garage and every time someone would come, he'd come out and say hello to them and then when they were leaving, he'd come out and say goodbye to them. Okay, so he literally went blind over a day. So um, all of a sudden we noticed he was... Um, he was like not walking properly and not knowing where he was going and we thought oh okay this is not looking looking interesting so i took him to the vet um while Miriam was throwing up at home at the same time and the vet said oh he's got two detached retinas two not just one and so she said he's probably had high blood pressure so they checked his blood pressure and the poor cat had high blood pressure and so that's probably been going on for a time, but he was attacked about a week and a half ago by a dog outside the front. And they said, look, probably that event actually made him, his blood pressure go up. And so it's probably finished off what was already started. So we said, okay. So we brought him home and he's on blood pressure medication now. <laughs> and now he's settling into a different life where we have to now look after the cat because he's, you know, he's trying to work out where he's going. She so said there's a slight chance that he might be able to um, uh, you know, improve with time if, if it can even partially attach itself if the blood pressure goes down. So the reason I'm telling you all that is not to feel sorry for the cat. Okay, the cat's had a really good life, okay? Uh, and he still will have a good life. Don't worry, we'll look after him. But the vet said, oh, you poor thing, as she was talking to the cat, all right? She goes, you poor thing, it's such a shame. Okay, it's a shame. Uh, who uses that phrase, it's a shame? You ever use that? It's such a shame. I've even used the, 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 the next level up, which is, it's a crying shame. Okay, have you used that one? Okay. So we, start, we use phrases like, it's a shame, it's a crying shame. What we're saying is, and the world is full of crying shames, to be honest with you. I mean, my whole life has been, not, not that I'm a crying shame, but what I'm saying is, I've known people where that have been in wonderful circumstances where everything's just fallen apart. You know, everything's just gone wrong, you know, and maybe they had the whole world in front of them or things were going really well. And all of a sudden, everything just just went really wrong. OK, and we sort of said stuff. Oh, it's a crying shame. Or maybe they they had all the potential to do the right thing. Instead, they made a bad choice and then they've gone the exact opposite way. And you sort of look at it and say, oh, that's a crying shame. People who sometimes had it all and didn't appreciate what they had, and they ended up throwing it all away. And that is a crying shame. And that's the topic of today's sermon. It's a crying shame. And we'll be looking at that with respect to this person that we just read about here. Okay, Because if you look at his existence and his life, uh, the scriptures are going to tell us that it was a crying shame what he actually got up to and what he did compared to what he had. Now, just let me quickly recap why this has come about now compared to what I've been preaching about the last few weeks, which has been about the conscience. So the past five weeks, 
I've been sharing this uh, information about the conscience and how we are to consider it, how we are to respond to it, what its function is, where it came from. And I'm hoping it's been a, a blessing to you so far, and hopefully it's been useful because part of my the reason I preach is not just to fill up your head with knowledge, but to help you understand what to do with it. Okay, Because you can fill up your head with knowledge, and the Bible says that knowledge puffs up. Okay, but if we learn how to use that knowledge for God's glory, then you don't get puffed up. You actually learn to glorify God through it. So you, we can't, we haven't been able to consider the conscience and what it does without reference to the other side of us, which is our fallen nature. You see, we not only have a conscience which tells us good and evil. Okay, we also have a fallen nature, which is a distinct, which is distinct from that. And the, the conscience' greatest challenge is us, is our fallen nature, okay, or the human heart. Because the Bible says, see that? That's the human heart, you see? Okay, that gives you an idea. He's given me a perfect illustration. That the human heart is deceptive above all things and desperately wicked. So our own human hearts, okay, which is the seat of our emotions and, and what, we, what we go chasing after, the Bible says is deceptive above all and desperately wicked. It's desperate in its wickedness. So we have a conscience which is telling us this is wrong or this is you know, wrong to do and this you shouldn't be doing. And then we have a heart which is deceptive and wants to be as wicked as possible. How does a conscience deal with a deceptive and wicked heart? How does a person who has two voices within them, the conscience and your heart, how do you distinguish between those two voices? Well, in most cases, you can't. Because whose voice have they got? Yours. <laughs> and they're both in your head. And so oftentimes people think, that voice must be mine. It's me. Okay? You can't really, the average person cannot... Uh, overcome the deceptive and wicked heart because the first person a deceptive heart deceives is you. And so you can't be saved by your own efforts because if your own heart deceives you, if your conscience isn't good enough to combat that, to withstand the onslaught of the heart, then there is no chance for salvation. So the conscience inevitably falls prey to the deceptive nature of the fallen heart and over time gets weaker and weaker and weaker, succumbing to this onslaught, this constant onslaught of our own heart. And if you want to consider how feeble the conscience is, okay, so every person um, since Adam and Eve fell has had a conscience. Okay? And so when you look at the first person who was ever born with real parents right, was Cain. Now, let's have a look at this particular fellow because Cain had an internal struggle going on in his mind. His heart, okay, and his deceptive heart wanted to kill his brother, okay, because he was showing him up in front of God. Abel was doing the right thing. Cain was doing the wrong thing. God said, I'm not going to accept your sacrifice because you haven't done it the right way, but I'm accepting Abel. Look at him as an example. I don't want to look at my younger brother as an example. I want to do it my way. And so Cain has this thought in his mind for the first time in history, a man has ever contemplated to kill someone, murder, and on top of that, murder his own brother. And so ineffective was Cain's conscience in restraining him from committing such a terrible thing. And even God said, uh, Cain, I noticed there's a sin lying at your door ready to come in. But you have to control it. Even God's warning wasn't enough to stop the first murder in history. Cain reveals to us the real human heart. That the human heart is too proud, too fragile, too full of self-deceit and self-absorbed, too godlike to ever be told you're wrong. You need to do it this way. You see, have a think of this. When someone tells you you made a mistake, you're wrong, 
the first emotion that comes up is not one of thank you. <laughs> it's one of how dare you tell me that I'm wrong. That does not come from the new nature we have. That comes from our old fallen nature. And so, okay, so for a period from the, from the Garden of Eden to Mount Sinai is a long time, isn't it? We're talking a long, long time. And so people had to deal with their consciences through that time. Their conscience was telling them what was right and what was wrong. And every time the conscience would lose. All right. And so God did something. He decided to give mankind a detailed set of laws. Detailed. Okay. So would a detailed set of laws support the conscience? Yes, it would. Because if, it say, if the, the detailed written law says, Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, how do you argue with that? You know, in your own mind, if you haven't got that written down, you might more easily sort of, you know, get around like Cain did. Well, you know, if I knock him over the head and finish him off, I won't have to deal with him anymore. But if there's a written law that says thou shalt not kill, then maybe you might not do it eh? because you know what the law is. And so God provides all these written laws. Um, and the, the answer might be, well, how could, how could a deceptive heart argue against a written law? Do you know what I mean? If everyone knew, and on top of that, not only... If the written law is in front of you, you might have less of a chance of being able to weasel your way out of it. But if everyone around you agreed with the same law, if the society that you lived in agreed with those laws and says this is the standard of our society, like most Western countries, okay, have thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. Okay, so they'll have that. If you have that as a basis for your society, it's not just you having to do with these laws. It's actually everyone around you agreeing and supporting you in that. Right. So any society that has that and agrees with those laws, that, that written code and any any society that has a conscience and believes in God, you might think, well, you know, maybe they've got a good chance of actually doing this. And so Israel received God's laws in a special covenant and a special agreement with him. And so surely... With all the detailed laws and the conscience and believing in God, you know, that society could be a shining example to the rest of the world, right? Surely a conscience with the support of a law, of the law in detail, and the support of a society that agreed with those laws, that codified them in their own uh, uh, um, definitions, in their own courts, could work? And the answer is... No, didn't. Look at Israel's history. Time and time and time again, they fell. And they broke the first commandments, the first two commandments, the first three commandments, the first four. They broke them all. From, from worshipping other gods to having idols to not celebrating the Sabbath properly, not honouring their parents. They, they broke them all, even though they were written down. So turn with me to Romans chapter 8 because there's, a, there's an explanation given to us in the word of God that even though the conscience supported by the written law tried was tried, it failed. And it's not that God didn't know it, but he wanted to show us. Romans chapter 8 verse 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. So let's just stop there. So what does it say the law was in terms of its strength? The law was weak. Why? Because of our flesh. Now when it speaks of flesh, it's not just speaking about my physical flesh, it's speaking about my fallen nature. Okay? So it's, it's saying because I'm fallen and my whole um, 
my whole character is tainted, my heart is deceptive, even if you write a written law for me, I'm still going to find a way around it because I don't want to follow it. And the problem is, I don't want to be subjected to any laws apart from my own. This is the, the situation we have in our world today. Everyone is encouraged to make their own. Okay? But go down to verse 7 of Romans chapter 8. It tells us why. It says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. That's hatred against God. For it is not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. For the, so then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. So, very clearly, the scriptures now explain to us that the thinking that I have my old mind, which is being driven by my deceptive heart and my fallen nature, cannot bow the knee to God's laws. It will not actually subject itself to God's law. To be subject to someone else means that I have to say, you're higher than me. You have authority over me. You're right and I'm wrong. The carnal mind, the fallen nature's way of thinking, guided and driven by our own hearts, is not subject to the law of God, and it can't be. It cannot be. It will never subject itself to the laws of God. It can't be saved. It can't be redeemed. It can't be improved. You know what it can be? It has to be killed. Okay, It has to be put to death. This is why the scriptures teach very clearly that in order for God to save you and me, he had to do a number of things all at the same time. Okay, When we say God saved us, most of us think automatically in terms of I was clean, all my sins were, were forgiven by the blood of Christ, Okay, through the blood of Christ. And we think of that. But I want you to understand that at the very same time that God cleansed you of all of your sin, he also gave you a new heart, the Bible says. A new heart, a heart that loves God, that loves his word, that loves his laws. God has planted that new heart in you. The Bible says not only he's given us a new heart, he's given us a new mind, the mind of Christ. So he's given us a new heart, he's given us a new mind. The apostle Peter then says he's given us a new nature. Right? No longer the flesh, the old nature. Now he's given us a new nature. And Peter calls that the divine nature. God's own character. Okay, He gives us. And on top of that, that conscience, which couldn't work before, which got corrupted and weakened as with time, God gave us a new voice to speak to us from the inside. You know, the Holy Spirit. God himself came inside and became our voice. Do you see what he had to do in order to save us? It was a huge mon monumental job. So when someone comes to me and says, oh, pastor, you can lose your salvation if you do a sin. I said, oh, really? Wow, okay. So God's got, to, in order for you to lose what God has done for you, you then have to be unwashed. You have to, God has to take away the new mind, the new heart, the new nature, the new identity as a child of God. He's got to reverse all of those things one after the other. And then, because you say, sorry, he's going to put them all back again, all over again. No, you can't lose your salvation once you've got it. Because the new nature that's been planted in you is the new you. It will never die. The old you was already being condemned. You know, when, when the moment you leave this earth, okay, and God gives you a new body, you know what's going to be left behind? The old. The only thing that's going to be left is the new. So I would encourage everyone, start working on the new. Okay? Start using the new mind. Start using your new heart. Start listening to the Spirit of God talking within you because he's developing you to grow. And there's a purpose for that. Because in all of eternity, 
that's who you're going to be. You don't want to be underdeveloped. You want to actually be mature. So the day you stand in front of God, you can say, praise God, look at the grace that has worked through me. Once we have these things, the Bible says we are born again as babes and the rest of our lives are now called to learn and to grow. For the rest of our lives, we begin to learn. For the first time, for those of us who are born again, about the goodness of God, about love, about truth, mercy, grace, holiness, righteousness, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, humbleness, and the list goes on and on. We learn things that we didn't know before, that were alien to us. And we do that through the word of God by a special teacher, by the Holy Ghost who teaches us his word. In my last sermon, I emphasized um, once saved, we are equipped and called to be disciples of Christ. You see, if you're not saved, you cannot be a disciple of Christ because to be a disciple of Christ you are called to follow every day, right? An unsaved person cannot do that. But once we are saved, we are called to be disciples. It's, it's the time when we are called to do that. And a main task of a disciple is to learn from their teacher, okay? to be like their teacher, to imitate their teacher. So my, my challenge to you this morning is, who are you imitating in your life? Who are you a disciple of? Now, I'm going to warn you here this morning because there are plenty of people on the internet, on YouTube and other things, who are calling you to be their disciples. And how will you know that you are a disciple of someone else more than a disciple of Christ? Because you begin to defend that person, everything they say. The moment you stop questioning someone on the internet who's preaching to you about one thing, even though you might like some of the things that they're teaching you, the moment you start que stop questioning that person and automatically assume what they're telling you is right, correct, and, and perfect, is the moment you have become a disciple of that person rather than a disciple of Christ. That means everything that Christ is teaching, you are filtering through one person. You see... I don't want you to be a disciple of me, okay? I don't want you in this church to think only Pastor Frank teaches the perfect truth. I need you to question me every step of the way because I need to be accountable to you. I don't want you to look to me as your perfect example on how to live because I am not perfect myself. I will try to be for you, but I am not perfect myself. I have obvious flaws, but there is one who doesn't have obvious flaws. There is one who teaches perfect truth. There is one who is the truth. And he needs to be at the forefront of our, of our focus. And everyone else has to fall well behind. You understand what I'm saying? Okay. And so we are called to be disciples of Christ. He is our master. We are answerable, each one of us, to him directly. And we answer to him as a church together. But if this is what life was all about, you know, from darkness to light, you know, the, the old nature, the new nature, it'd be challenging enough, you know, because our greatest foe is within us, okay? Our greatest enemy is lying inside, and that's why we have to fight the good fight every day. But unfortunately, this is not the case. The, 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 the foe we have is not just within us, there is one outside of us. There is another foe, another invisible one, one who has sought to corrupt us from the very beginning and one who seeks to keep us enslaved and separated from God. Apart from our own fallen nature, the other enemy we have is the devil. Okay, Is the devil a real person? The answer to that is 100% yes. Okay, He is called Satan, the accuser of the brethren. He is also called the devil and a few other names as well in the Bible. And he is from the beginning chosen to corrupt our conscience, okay, to get us to fall to a position where he has dominance over us. 
Remember, his desire is to be God. And the first ones he played God with was us. Over the millennia, he has done this consistently in order to keep man subjugated and to have total domination over him. One thing that I can tell you to be absolutely true from the Bible about Satan is that he will always promise you freedom and happiness. The devil never promises you a life of misery. He never promises you a life of suffering. He never promises you that you'll have to fight. He never promises you that he's going to give you, you know, bad things. The devil always promises happiness and freedom. Freedom from God. Freedom from God's laws. Remember, you don't want to be under the dominion of, of, of anyone. So he promises you freedom and happiness, but he can only give you bondage and death. And he uses our own weak nature consistently against us by sowing lies and confusion. It is the reason that we see such carnage in the world. We see so many false religions in the world. We see so much division within Christianity because he's managed to convince them, one, to go in that direction, another one to go in that direction, another one to follow him, another one to follow him. It was going all the way back to the, to the Apostle Paul's day where he goes, you know, you guys, what are you guys talking about? You're saying you're of Apollos. This one's of Paul. This one's of someone else. What are you doing? And it's because he was already sowing division in the actual church. And he's done that very, very well. The devil always presents mankind with options masquerading as choice but instead always delivers confusion and bondage in this well-known passage that i've we read just before and i'll get you to turn back with me there now because i'm going to go through that in a, in a moment um actually i'll turn, get you to turn back to isaiah 14 verse 12 to 14 you'll notice one of the first things that sort of stands out is a name okay is a name and this was his original name. He was not created Satan. He wasn't created evil. He wasn't. Um, this is not how God wanted him to be. And it says in verse 12 of Isaiah 14, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. You see, we find out what his original name was. And it wasn't Satan or devil. It was Lucifer. The name Lucifer literally means the bearer or the bringer of light. You like that? The bringer of light. Wow. He's called here the son of the morning. The son of the morning of the creation of God. He's called that. What a name. I mean, seriously. To be called the bringer of light. To be called the son of the morning. That is a seriously fantastic description of someone. But then we also see his fall. We also see his heart. And then rebellion against God. So it says here that he lifted up his heart. He was lifted up in his heart. And he wanted to be the ruler over the sons of God. Over the angels of God. He wanted to be their ruler. He was not their ruler already. He may have been a great angel. Some have surmised that he is the greatest angel ever created. Don't know. We don't, we're not sure about that. Okay. It doesn't necessarily say, but it says some things about him, which would have made him quite unique in the way he was made. But it says here that not only did he seek to create a throne for himself over all the other angels, when all the other angels were worshipping the Son of God on the throne, but he's also weakened the nations. He's made them full of iniquity and rebellion 
against God's laws. And in those, in those nations and through those nations, he has poked people's, um, uh, what's the word, their fallen natures to kill each other, to gain power. Men are fallen beings who manipulate each other to get power, but they are manipulated by another fallen being who's seeking to gain power. Except one is blind to the other one. So verse 14 says, I will ascend. And I want you to pay close attention here. It says here, now this is an angel of God, one of the greatest angels ever created, no doubt. And he says, it says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Now, in order for him to do this, he knew he had to be seen almost the same as God himself. But I want you to notice, he doesn't say, I am like God. Have you noticed that? He already knew that he wasn't like God. He couldn't be like God because God is infinite in his nature. But he says, I will be, I will be like the Most High. Well, how? He certain, certainly couldn't be the same as God in his power and attributes. Well, he could be the same in rule. He could rule through rebellion. And he felt as if he deserved to be sitting on a throne because of his own attributes. But I want you to notice something interesting here. If you consider the context of this language and consider that Satan was an angel of where? Of heaven. All right? It doesn't seem to make sense. Why would he say, if he was already in heaven, I will ascend into heaven? Why would he say that? Why would he say, oh, I will ascend into heaven? Well, he was already in heaven. He was an angel of heaven. What does it mean that when he says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds? I mean, does heaven have clouds? No, last time I checked, there's no indication of clouds in heaven or rain. So what clouds are you talking about? I know clouds here, it's been raining a fair bit. So where would Satan have to be when he came up with this particular thought? On the earth, not in heaven. There is a place, and it's the earth, where this thought entered his heart. It was while he was on the earth. Now the question is, if he's on the earth before he's fallen, and he's contemplating, when I get back up there, I'm going to get my throne. I'm going to go above these clouds and I'm going to get into heaven. I'm going to have my throne there and I deserve it. Um, what was he doing on earth before man's fall, before his fall? And so the three questions that come to mind as I consider this, the first is, when would he have had this thought? When? The second is, why did he have these thoughts? And the third is, if that he had these thoughts while on the earth, what on earth was he doing on the earth? And where? So let's start. We'll start with the when. Okay? Now, when this was written in Isaiah, by Isaiah, we're talking thousands of years after the fall of man and after his rebellion against God. And so this was during the Babylonian Empire this passage is being written against that nation, against that king, during Isaiah's days. The text doesn't say it happened then. The text says he has done this. He's ha he has had this thought. Thou hast said sometime in the past. He obviously didn't wait for around 3,000 years to have them. Now, he fell a long time before this. Okay, so the fall of Lucifer had to have occurred between the time that, that the angels were created and the fall of man. And why do I say the fall of man? Because when he went and tempted man, he was already fallen, wasn't he? Because he was doing, already doing dodgy stuff. So it had to be from the, between the time they were created or he was created to the fall of man. And so, because that time he was already <laughs> fallen. Now, do we know when the angels were created? Well, not exactly. But in terms of creation, we do have some scripture that indicates when. 
So turn back to Job chapter 38. Job chapter 38. And we'll look at verses 4 to 7. Now, God is speaking to, to Job here, and he's telling him off, right? Nice and simple. He's saying to Job, you've got it wrong, mate. I'm, I'm going to explain the reality of things. And it says in Job 38, verse 4, um, Where was thou? Where were you? Okay, he's talking to Job. Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare it, if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measure thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who has laid the cornerstone thereof? Look at verse 7. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Hang a sec. All the sons of God shouted for joy and the morning stars sang together. That sounds a whole lot like a bunch of angels getting together and having a party. They were singing and, uh, and, and, and praising God for doing what? For laying the foundation of the earth. Now, if they praise God when he was laying the foundation of the earth, what hasn't he done yet? Well, there's no animals there, is there? And all the other stuff that we, we take for granted in the creation wasn't there there's no birds buffaloes or man there's no trees no no anything at all god simply laid the foundation and the, and the angels were there and saying wow fantastic job and you'll notice something important here how many of them shouted for joy all all the angels shouted for joy had satan fallen then no all of the angels shouted for joy, every last one of them. Now, how many days did God take to create the earth? Six. Remember, he wrestled in the seventh, right? Uh, and what did God finally say when he finished making everything? Well, turn to Genesis 1.31 with me. Genesis 1.31. So God's taken six full days and then he rests on the seventh and let's see if Satan's fallen by then. Did Satan fall in the first couple of days? Maybe three or four days? Genesis 1.31. And it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work, which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. Any fall then? Was God happy with everything that he made yes everything including the angels so when god rested all of creation including heaven the earth and every last one of the angels were in good were good and so satan had to have fallen after this okay how long were adam and eve in the garden of eden because we know that when they fell when he caused them to fall God kicked them out, right? How long were they in the Garden of Eden from the time they were created? Does anyone know? Well, the answer is we don't really, okay? But we do know something. We know, according to Scripture, that Adam was 130 years old when he begat Seth. Okay? So Seth was the third son, okay? Because Cain and Abel came first and Seth came after. So Adam was 130 years old when he had Seth. Okay. Um, and the whole drama of Cain and Abel had now worked its way through. 
Now, how old would Cain and Abel have been if they were tending flocks and growing veggies, you reckon? How old could they have been? 50? 30? I mean, you can start working at 20, can't you? In Italy, they'll probably make you work at 15 or something like that, or 12. My grandfather went out uh, sheep herding when he was 10, right? They would send him off with the sheep in the morning with a piece of cheese and a bottle of water, and away he went. And he'd come back, live in the morning and come back in the evening. How's that for a life? So anyway, well, let's say they were roughly 30, maybe 40. Well, that would mean that they were kicked out of the garden roughly when? Because they, had, they only had Cain after they left the garden, not before. Cain wasn't born in the garden, he was born out of the garden. So it's possible they could have been in the garden for up to 100 years, roughly, right? That's a possibility. And there's no real argument to say that, no, it can't be that. But by the same token, they could have been there, they could have been kicked out earlier. We don't know exactly, but we know the limits. Okay, they couldn't have fallen before the eighth day, okay, because the seventh, everything was good. Now, unless they were that quick at, at getting ruined, okay, and getting deceived in one day uh, by, by the devil, then that would, that would have been a quick fall. But between eight, eighth day and a hundred years, they could have been in that garden together. Now, the question is, well, I wonder what life would have been like in that garden. Ever thought about that? I mean, we all say, oh, what a wonderful place it would have been. You had all the beautiful fruit trees and, and all you had to do was tend to them, okay? And there was no sickness, there was no death, no flus, no people throwing up with uh, viruses and stuff like that. No, no anything else. No sore limbs and bones and joints. Okay, so everything was like really good. And, and they're there. And they may have been there days weeks months years in that particular place and so the question is what were they doing there what were they doing there most of the time okay they weren't making children okay but what were they doing they were remember the bible says they were created like children they were innocent like children so i want you to imagine your children when they're you know two years old or three years old what do they what do they think the difference is that they've got fully matured brains Okay, and they're super smart. So what, do you, what would you want to do if you were in that? I'd want to learn everything. I want to know everything. I'd be exploring. I'd be asking questions. I'd be, I'd be wanting to know how much I could know. So we know that Satan would have fallen during that particular time they were in the garden. So I want you to turn to Ezekiel 28 with me for a moment. I'm going to share something with you, with you, but you may not have heard before. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 11. This is another passage about the devil, okay? which is an oracle against an earthly ruler. But what it does, it condemns not just the earthly ruler, it condemns the power or the entity behind that particular ruler. And you'll get the gist pretty quickly about who it's talking about here. Ezekiel 28, verse 11. Now, I want you to take note here. Moreover, it says, The word of the Lord came unto me, that's the prophet Ezekiel saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation. Lamentation means to what? When you lament, you cry. Okay? Take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now, isn't that a fantastic phrase? Fantastic. Who's it talking about? It's not talking about an earthly king who's perfect in beauty and full of wisdom, who seals up the sum. This is talking about the devil. Okay, This is talking about Lucifer. And it says, take up a lamentation for him. You know what it's saying? Have a bit of a cry about this guy. Okay? This is a crying shame. This is what it's saying. What I'm about to write is a crying shame. And so it says here, it says, take up this lamentation because you sealed up the sum. Now, 
the sealed up the sum. You know how how many places now you can actually give a rating to something, whether it's you know one to ten or whatever else it is. One being bad, ten being what? Perfect. Okay. So so what this is saying, we sealed up the sum. He had the perfect score. All right. He had the perfect score in terms of his intelligence and beauty. He had this this God created this being so wise that he was a perfect ten. And he was so beautiful, he was a perfect ten. He had tens in both of those attributes. He was perfectly wise and perfectly beautiful. And God made him this way. Okay? God gave him that particular combination. But now I want you to notice something interesting. Because the very next verse, after it said how beautiful and wise he is, look at what verse 13 says. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardius, topaz and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald and the carbuncle and gold. The workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. Now, he was perfect in wisdom, perfect in beauty. But on top of that, this guy is clothed with the most precious jewels. He must have been quite a sight to see. Not only that, God gave him the innate ability to make music within himself. He doesn't need an instrument. And in fact, so it says here, his tabrets and his pipes were prepared. So you know what a tabret is? Who's played a tabret before? It's like a tambourine. Okay. Oh, there we go. We've got one, one over here. So a tabret is a tambourine. Pipes are like flutes. So the scripture says not only is he absolutely beautiful he's clothed with all this all this jewelry which would have sparkled everywhere on top of that he's able to make music in and of himself and i wonder because he was he's described as a serpent ever seen a rattlesnake you know how it shakes now i wonder whether that's a poor reflection of what he was able to do right and i wonder how he was able to to actually make such beautiful music that God would make such a, a, a big deal about it. But God says, look at what you had. I made you perfect. You were absolutely beautiful. You had it all. But in the middle of all this beautiful stuff, it says you were even in Eden, the garden of God. With all the, your beauty, with all of your splendor, you were there. Uh, hang on a sec. What's the devil doing? with all of his wisdom and beauty and music abilities in the Garden of Eden. And what was Eden? Eden was a sanctuary. Eden was Adam and Eve's home. It was hallowed ground compared to the rest of the world. It was different because that's where God planted that garden. That's where God would meet with them. So if you notice after they fell, they actually had they recognized his voice in the garden. And they hid themselves in the tree. So they knew his voice. And that's where they would, he would meet with them. It was a special place. It was like a sanctuary for them. And the devil was in there. But he wasn't the devil. He was Lucifer. He was the bearer of light. He was filled with perfect wisdom. Why would God need to fill him with perfect wisdom? Why would he make him an entertainment unit as well? Maybe because his job was in the garden. Maybe his job was there. And something happened. And I'll keep it to with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. I'm going to, I'm going to I'll say to you, I believe, and I'm going to say this from the front as my, what I understand from the scriptures here, that Satan was given perfect wisdom he was created in a specific way so that he could actually teach Adam and Eve. So he could be their guardian. Okay, So he could be their servant, in a sense. Okay, And I'll, and I'll 
I'm going to explain why I think that. Because Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13 says, when God is ex- when the Apostle Paul here is explaining the difference between Christ and all the angels, okay, he says it's a massive difference because, because, the, because Jesus is the Son of God, right? And he's saying all the angels are something else. And he says here, but to which, in verse 13, to which of the angels said he, which is God, at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemy thy footstool? The answer is none. Okay, none. That's a rhetorical question. He hasn't said to any of the angels, sit at my right hand. Okay, but look at verse 14. It says, are they not all ministering spirits? Now, what's a a minister? A minister is, that's another word for a servant okay so i'm a minister of yours okay which means i am a servant to you that's that's my calling okay that's what god has asked me called me sorry to do so it says they're all ministering spirits look at this send forth to minister for them who shall be the heirs of salvation who are the heirs of salvation you should put your hand up. Right? Okay. So all of the angels are servants for us. Now that seems strange, doesn't it? Why, why is God calling these ministering spirits? Why have they been sent forth to minister for us who are the heirs of salvation? Maybe that's the way God created them from the beginning. Because it says there, the ones who are the heirs of salvation, and, and my, my question to you is, oh, who are the heirs of salvation? Well, we know the heirs of salvation are us. We have inherited salvation because of what Jesus did. Then I want you to ask you a question because most of you believe you have a guardian angel, don't you? Most of you believe that God's angels are protecting you even now, don't you? And I know that some of you get up, get up to no good, right? lopping down trees in the middle of the forest or whatever it is and you and and you keep your angels very busy okay protecting you from getting killed but we believe that angels god sends his angels to protect us don't we to look after us okay now let me ask you a question were adam and eve heirs of salvation Were they saved then? Were they children of God? 100% they were children of God. They were the children of God. And they were created in perfect innocence. Okay? They had not committed any sin. Okay? And so most of you believe, as I've said, you believe in, um, in guardian angels. Matthew 18, verse 10, Jesus says the same. Jesus says and warns his disciples, take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you, that in heaven there are angels who always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. Their angels. Theirs. Who's he talking about? The little ones that have put their trust in him. And Jesus says, you better not despise any of these because they've got their angels and they're, in the, they're, they're right there standing in the, the, in, in the front of God waiting for the command. Right? Did Adam and Eve have a relationship with God? Yes, they did. Now, my question is, if God has his angels looking after little ones who trust in him, did he not have one to look after his first ones? I think yes. I think there's a very good argument to say that his job was to look after them, to be there. And I suspect he was the first guardian angel. Okay? And what was he called to do? Well, he's, he's, I believe he was given full wisdom, perfect wisdom, in order to be able to teach them what they needed to know. Look at, go back to Ezekiel 28, verse 14. Because there's more that God said that he had. Not just that. He had more. And this is why his, his life is a crying shame. 
Ezekiel 28, verse 14. You'll notice it says here, Thou art, in verse 14, Thou art the anointed, that's a chosen, the specially chosen cherub that covereth. And I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. You know what the word cover means? The, the word cover means to protect. It means to literally to fence in, to, to keep as a fence around, to protect. It's a bit like, you know, when you've got animals and you, you put a fence around it to protect them from the out and being able to run out and being able and keeping the wolves out. For instance, if you had sheep, it's like that. It's in a pen. And so the, the, the picture that we get from this term covering is one of protection. But if Satan was or Lucifer was specifically chosen to be the protector, the question then is the protector of what? Because most people, most uh, theologians say he's a protector of God's throne, that he's above God's throne, protecting God's throne. The question I would have is, why would God need protection? Why does God need protection from who? If all of the angels are perfect and they're all worshipping him, does God need to be protected? I wonder, I wonder about that. But anyway, but there is another option. The other option is that he's the protector of Adam and Eve. He's the one that fenced them in, in that garden. You see, every good garden needs a fence. And I believe that he was the guardian of them. He was there. I believe he was there. And I'm saying I believe because I can't prove it 100% to you. But I'm saying from my, from my perspective, this is the more obvious answer and explains what happened with him. Okay, I believe that he was their schoolmaster, their guardian. Called to teach them the truth, the bearer of light. Called to be a source of enjoyment. That's why he could do music. Called to guide, to teach them what the boundaries were in life. And it's interesting that... Every place where God meets people, he always he tends to put an angel there. If you notice, when he kicked them out of the garden, what, who did he put to actually guard the garden so no one could get in there anymore? He puts, he puts cherubs there. And, and Satan was a cherub. Above the mercy seat of God. So God told Moses to make a box. In that box, he told him to put the you know Aaron's staff and the manna, some of the manna, and he told them to put the Ten Commandments in there. And he made a lid with covered with gold. And what does he put over that lid? Cherub. Two cherubs looking over. In the temple also, God puts cherubs, told them to put engravings of cherubs there as well. It seems that every time that God creates a place where he meets with people, he's got cherubs floating around. So I wonder whether the first sanctuary that God ever made, the place where he walked with his firstly created children who were in his own image, he put a cherub there to watch over it. But it says that Satan also had the ability to walk up and down the midst of the stones of fire. He was um, on the holy mountain of God it says that he was perfect in his ways, but then he found they found iniquity in him. He could also do things that maybe only he could do, and he was perfect. Look at the last three verses, 16, 7, and 18. This is where things completely turn around. By the multitude of thy merchandise... They have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore, I will cast thee as a profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O cherub, a covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. 
I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. Therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee. It shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. And I want you to, and we're going to close with that, that particular thought. Lucifer's existence became filled with violence because of what he was peddling, what he was selling. See the word merchandise? You know, when people make merchandise or something, they wrap it up in order to be able to sell it and make profit on it, right? So what is he selling? What was he selling? You know, you're selling lies. He was selling promises that they could have freedom. He sold the same lie to Adam and Eve and said, if you eat this fruit, you're going to be just like God, which means you won't have to be under him because you're going to be like him. He said the same thing to the, to the angels, promising them freedom and in, caused them to have a rebellion, and it filled him with violence. Satan promises and sells freedom, but he only offers bondage. Every promise sin has for you will only come with disappointment, captivity and death. The more you have your fill of sin, the more your life will be filled with frustration and violence and anger. Because it cannot ever satisfy. In verse 18 it says he defiles his sanctuaries. He had more than one to work in. And I suspect that one of those sanctuaries was the Garden of Eden. But he obviously had one in heaven as well. These are special places that God had given him access to and responsibility for. So it got to the point where nothing was holy to Satan. He didn't care about holiness, didn't care about his position, didn't care about what he already had. Think of now what he had. He had more than any other created being at that point. And he was about to throw the whole thing away because of what he wanted. So God promises judgment to Lucifer by casting him out of the mountain of God, by throwing him away from the stones of fire to the ground where he will be consumed by fire. And that's how Satan became, or Lucifer became, the god of this world. Why did Satan fall? I think, well, the Bible clearly says that he was lifted up in pride in his heart. You know, if you were, you thought you were so, so good, and you had a job having to tend to these ones that looked like God, but were thick as bricks compared to you. Didn't have all the wisdom that you had. And now you had a job of having to actually teach these little brats when you could be doing so much more. And on top of that, you may have been called to be a servant to them. How dare you call me to be a servant to these ones? I don't want to serve. I want to be free. I want to be like God. I want to be the one who calls the shots. He felt that he was so much more than God had called him to do. And he began, began to hate God and to hate us because we looked like God. We were his precious ones. So what do you do when you hate someone and you see the very kids that he's got look like him. Well, you hate them as well and you want to ruin the whole party. And that's what he did. He hatched a plan where he could be glorified, remove himself from having to serve anyone else, including God. Instead, he could make us his slaves. Where he could be adored for his beauty where he could be admired for his wisdom, where he could have a throne for himself and he could promise the angels freedom 
from God's rules too. Lucifer's life is, can rightly be described as a crying shame. Someone who had it all, but threw it all away because of pride. But this is not just his story, this is man's story. You see, look at what we had in the garden. We had it all, and we threw it away. We had such a wonderful prospect that we took and looked for that thing which we didn't have and forgot about all the things that we did. Given all, but appreciating none of it. Have you seen this this story played out in the lives of people around you? Because I have. I've seen people who have wonderful, have been given so many wonderful things, but they don't appreciate it. Instead, they look for the things that they don't have, and they willingly risk what they have for what they don't. And it often falls apart and is a complete disaster. Look carefully around your life and you'll see this pattern over and over again. This world is filled with stories that are just a crying shame. And it's the greatest crying shame for a person to be offered eternal life and then turn it down. It's a crying shame if someone who has fallen once and is given a second chance and they say, no, I would rather go chasing stuff that I want to chase. It's a crying shame when someone says, when someone's offered the joys of heaven and to be able to walk the streets of gold in heaven, to be with the one who loves them more than anyone else because they would rather not bow the knee to God. That's a crying shame. And if there's anyone here today who is in that position, if you haven't bowed the knee yet, please don't allow your life to be epitomised as a crying shame. Don't be fooled by the one who offers you freedom, who offers you happiness, but has kept you in bondage for a long, long time. Why choose an egotistical, selfish deceiver over the one who willingly gave his life for you so that you can be freed from the bondage of sin and death and be together with him forever? Please make that decision today if you haven't already. And Christian, be appreciative of what you have because you now have what we can't even describe. We cannot even fathom what God has given us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Appreciate what you have in Jesus. God bless you. Let's close in a hymn.